saying we are in a series called the Gospel, the Miracles of Jesus according to John. As we're looking at the Gospel of John as it tells us of eight miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that point to the deity of who Jesus was and allows us to understand who God is ultimately. Uh, we are in number six of eight. Uh, we're actually going to spend a whole uh, series just focusing on what is known as the Passion Week or the week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to turn our attention to what is known as the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. Uh, leading up to this, this is the last Passover that Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem leading up to the Passover when he comes in and they wave the, the palm branches and shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, and ultimately his crucifixion. And leading up to this event, Jesus has been making some pretty controversial statements to the Jewish people. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he makes this statement that truly I tell you before Abraham was, I am. And it is one of the most important passages of Scripture where Jesus is claiming his deity or his equality with God. He makes a very similar statement in John chapter 8, verse 30. It drives home the point even, even further where he says, I and the Father are one. And Jesus wanted the people to know that who he was in being God in the flesh, perfect perfect God in order to come to take the sins of the world upon himself or the wrath of God upon himself. But leading up to this particular miracle in John chapter 9, there's a statement that Jesus makes in, in chapter 8, verse 12, that this miracle shines light of the truth on. In, in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, this miracle is aimed at, at illuminating this truth. So as we come into chapter 9, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Uh, the Passover celebration has drawn to, is drawing to a conclusion or has already concluded. And Jesus is walking about, and we're told in verse 1, as he was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. And it's not meant to be a derogatory statement that the blind man couldn't see Jesus. It was meant to say is that God is aware of us before we are aware of God. Jesus saw him, and most likely in his stopping to notice this man that most people probably pass by every day of their life and didn't give uh, one ounce of credit to even existing, Jesus stops and looks at him, which makes the disciples ask a question there in verse 2 of chapter 9. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? The title rabbi there in verse 2 is a title of respect. It means teacher, but it also implies in the Jewish world it's an individual who is over other individuals. It was an individual people would turn to for information and knowledge and, and understanding of a particular situation. The question disciples are asking is a belief in which they were brought up that if I had a sin, then most likely it was going to cause something in my life. Now, the Bible does say that we do reap what we sow and sin does bring consequences. But the disciples' belief is that, you know, if, if I get ill or if I have some sort of handicap in my life, then it's obviously that I have done something against God, I've sinned against God, and he is therefore bringing punishment upon me. They, they saw sin as having benefits and consequences in life. Paul understood this idea that we reap what we sow in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. But see, the disciples grew up with this belief, and what they're trying to do is understand, okay, what I've been taught since I grow up, how does this actually apply to life? 
How do I bring understanding to this man's life who's born blind, who's born in what they would classify as sin? Was it this man's fault or was it his parents' fault? So they turned to Jesus and their understanding is, okay, since illnesses and handicaps are results of sin, then who's to blame for this particular man's uh, situation? That's what they want to know. That's the belief system they're bringing to. Did he do something or did his parents? And it might seem like an odd belief system, but I've encountered people uh, in my own life that have this similar sort of belief system that if something's wrong going in your life, you must have done something for God to get irritated with you. He's obviously punishing you for that. Um, Kendrick and I joke around, you know, how's your tithe? Um, I've had individuals ask when I've been sick and kids have been sick and the cars start working, you know, are you still tithing? It's, it's this belief that God is punishing us if we just simply get out of line. Now, sin does have consequences. Uh, sins of us uh, as parents uh, can be consequences upon our children as they see us and they begin to model their behavior. But what Jesus does is address that situation and gives clarity in verse 3 and 4. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answers, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, and night is coming when no one can work. First off, Jesus is addressing the issue with the disciples. This is a very teaching moment. And one thing we can rest assured, parents, is that our sins are not transferable to our children. Whew. But one thing we also have to be aware of is neither is our salvation. It is not a transferable act. It is not something we can write in our will that because I'm saved, our kids are going to be saved. But our kids are not going to be blamed for our sins in our life. But the truth is, our sins do have a negative impact on our kids. We see throughout the Old Testament that when people looked up to others in, in positions of authority, like the kings, that they followed their example. And so us as parents and grandparents, what we have to be aware of is our kids look to us and they see the pattern of behavior that we have, and they're going to follow that behavior. So we're either leading our kids to live sinful actions and sinful lifestyles, or we're leading them to live righteous lifestyles. But my sin is not going to be transferable to my son or my daughter, but neither is my salvation. And so Jesus addresses that issue, but then he also goes on to say that the reason this man is the way he is is so that God's work there in verse 3, God's work might be displayed in him. What Jesus is saying in that moment is God was fully aware of this individual. Even though other people may have passed by him day after day and not give a, a second thought to his existence, God was fully aware. And this man is in this particular situation at this particular moment in time so that God's work can be manifested through him, so that the glory of God can be seen. But it brings an interesting question there in verse 4. Jesus says something about the night is coming, and we have to work while it is stay, still day, but the night is coming when no one can work. What does that mean? Is he talking like a pre-trib or mid-trib? I mean, what, what exactly is Jesus getting at when he's talking about there's going to be a time that the night is coming and no one's going to work? It goes back to verse 12 where Jesus says that I am the light of the world. And Jesus says it there again in verse 5, as long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. But notice there in verse 4, Jesus does not say that I must do the works. If your Bible has that translation in verse 4 where it says I must do the work, the original translation, the earliest manuscripts say that we must do the work. Jesus is inviting the disciples to be a part of the works of God. That's the works that he's referring to. And he says we must do the work while it is still day for night is coming. Within scripture, day and night mean different things. 
The word day can refer to those that, who are in the light, those who are found in Jesus Christ, those who see the things of God. Day refers to times of hope and times of opportunity, whereas night refers to the exact opposite. Night is, is those who can't see the things, of the, the things of God, those who are in darkness and those who are living in uncertainty. And so what Jesus is speaking of here when he's speaking about there's a day and there's a night coming, he's speaking about there's a time of uncertainty that's going to arise. He's speaking about there's a time when I am not physically going to be with you and it's going to be a time of a lack of hope. It's going to be a time of darkness. It's going to be a time of uncertainty. It's going to be hard to see the things of God when I'm physically not with you. If we read through the Gospel of John, what Jesus is preparing his disciples a year out is the moment in time a year from now when he's going to come back into Jerusalem in the Passover and night is going to come upon the disciples. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of lack of hope. They're not going to be able to see how God has fully manifested himself until Jesus shows himself once again as a resurrected Lord. But what he's also telling us here in verse four and five is that there are going to be moments in our life when we must seize the opportunity for ministry. Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me while his day because night is coming when no one can work. Here's the truth we all need to understand. There are moments of opportunity in, your, in people's lives that God has placed in your life where they're going to be more receptive to the light of the gospel than any other time in their life. A lot of times this comes when we lose a loved one or we're going through a very traumatic situation and we've got nowhere to turn but God alone. But there are people in your life that you, we have to seize this moment of opportunity when the light is able to shine into their life and to give them clarity and hope. As parents, we have this moment where our kids live with us maybe 18, maybe 20 years, and maybe until we just say that's enough and you got to go. But there's a point in time where our kids are no longer going to live under our roof. We have this moment of opportunity to minister to our kids, to train them up and raise them up in the ways they should go in the fear and the knowledge of God. Even though there's moments we may wish that they were out the door, the reality is God has given us this moment to pour his word and his love and his light into their life. These are moments we cannot squander, we cannot miss. Students, there are people in your life right now that are not going to be in your life the same way 10 years from now. You may say hallelujah, praise the Lord for some of them. But there are some people that you interact with day in and day out right now that you have a moment of opportunity to be a minister into their life. To shine the light, to shine the gospel into their life because they're living in darkness. And you've got this moment. You may think they're just a classmate or just a part of a group or a sports team that you're involved in. But the reality is that God has brought you together so you can be that light and have that moment of opportunity. Adults, you work with people right now that you may not work with in a couple years or a couple months. I know some of them, you're probably praying that's true. But the reality is there are people in your life that God has put in your life. But you have this moment of opportunity to minister to them, to make an impact in their life for the gospel to be the light into the darkness. It's for this reason we read in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we are to, in our hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We have to seize the day for the ministry and the moments of ministry. They won't always be there. When I was in high school, I had an individual come up to me and ask, hey, Mike, can you tell me how to be saved? And I wish I could tell you he asked me because I was living as if I was saved. 
The reality is he was asking because my dad was a pastor and all my friends knew my dad was the pastor. And so uh, the, the situation, I remember him asking me this question. The situation took me so off guard, I had to set down my beer. Uh, I was in high school, by the way. And I had to say, uh, you should come to church. That was the only answer I could give him. Because I was not regarding Christ as Lord. I was not ready to give a defense in my life. And I found myself in a situation. I was not acting like a Christian. I was not acting like I was saved. And so this individual who once asked me, how can I make sure that I go to heaven when I die? I squandered that moment of opportunity. Matter of fact, I've reached out to this individual through phone. I've ran into this individual in the last couple years personally. I've reached out through Facebook and messaging and just asking how they're doing and asking you, hey, do you remember that conversation? Remember that question you asked me? And never again has that individual been receptive to that conversation. I don't know where that individual is right now, but all, all I know is that I've missed that opportunity. There are people in your life right now that God has placed in your life to seize the moment of ministry, to speak light into them. They may be receptive to it, they may not, but that's why they're there. God has expanded your mission field. Turning back to this passage, look here in verse six. After he said these things, so after he taught his disciples, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. <laughs> That's just disgusting. Um, save your spit. I mean, the, the, Jesus sees this man. Disciples ask a question. Jesus answers the question. He turns his attention back to the man. Then he hawks his big old nasty lordly loogie into the ground. He makes some mud and then he takes the mud and he smears it on the man's eyes. Now, if someone did that to you, would you not extend the right hand of fellowship? If someone spit on the ground, took the mud from their spit, splatted it on your face and then said, all right, now go wash it off. Would you not first take care of the situation? This is disgusting. I mean, the, Mark, when Mark records this, this incident, Mark says that Jesus just spit on the man's face. Why would Jesus do this? He's, he could have just said, all right, go, you are healed, you can now see, and it would have happened. Why does he take the situation that he's going to spit and he's going to make mud? It's because it's going to require this man to, to take this strange event to take this thing that doesn't make any sense, that, that take this thing that, you know, if anyone else did this to me, I would be very upset. And I have to take a moment of faith. I have to believe something that just seems odd, it seems impossible, it doesn't seem like it's going to make any sense, it seems disgusting. But I'm going to have a moment of faith that this man who spit on the ground and then wiped this mud on my face is going to work. And obviously he is healed and if the story ended there, this would be great. He's healed. Everybody's happy. Disciples got a teaching moment. The man receives his sight. But then we go on through scripture and we find that this man is eventually bombarded by neighbors and those who know him, who then take him to the Pharisees, who then the Pharisees bring his parents in. And then the, the parents turn it back over to the Pharisees. And this man is just bombarded by all these people because they knew him as the blind man. He was born blind and yet now we see and they can't seem to grab an understanding of how this happened. But one thing we can grab from this is when Jesus gets a hold of us. When Jesus changes us, it should be noticeable by others. 
It should be noticeable by the people that God has placed in our life. There's something different about us. There's something that has changed. There's something that is continuing to change. There's something that people should see that, that Jesus has done a good work in us. And the neighbors, those individuals who grew up around this blind man, those individuals who knew him, they were so baffled by this. So, yeah, that's him. That's the guy born blind. The others said, no, that just looks like him. Everybody said, that's his doppelganger. You know, that's just the, you know, we see that other guy all around all the time. He just looks like him, but he wasn't actually blind. And, and, and so they, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't rationalize. So they, they take it to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. They're the ones who are supposed to give uh, instruction and understanding the situation, just like the disciples turned to Jesus as rabbi to give instruction and understanding. And the Pharisees take the same approach. Hey, look, if you were actually born blind, then how can you now see? What, what has changed? How did this come about? And so the man says, look, this is what happened. Jesus, he hawked this lordly loogie. He rubbed it in the dirt and he smeared it on my eyes. He told me to go wash. I did, and now I can see. And the Pharisees, instead of being overwhelmed by the power of God and the miracle of God, they couldn't get past their tradition and legality. Verse 14 says, the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was the Sabbath. So here's this man, born blind, now can see, and all the Pharisees can see is that, you know what, he broke a rule. Jesus is a rule breaker. And they say that, verse, in verse uh, 16, some of the Pharisees says, this man, speaking of Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, within the Jewish people, you had the written law of God, what we call predominantly the Old Testament of the Torah, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, and then you have the oral law. And the, the Pharisees originally started as taking the law of God and they, they put together this oral law with a good purpose. They wanted the Jewish people to understand this is how you should live in the world in which we find ourselves. This is how you interpret this. This is what this means. This is what this looks like. And so when it came to the Sabbath, the Pharisees had 39 categories of what was work and what wasn't work. And so when they say that Jesus is a lawbreaker, they're saying that he broke one of these 39 categories, which for us is to ask, okay, which one was it? Was it the healing or the spitting? Which one was the law breaking of the Sabbath? And according to Jewish custom, it was against the law. It was considered work to hawk a loogie and then make dirt, dirt with or mud with it. If you did that, that was work. So on the Sabbath, we're Jewish people. We can't spit and then do this. That's mud working. That's breaking the Sabbath. This is how ridiculous it had been. And so they're mad at Jesus because he did work. They constitute that as work. And their anger towards Jesus and how they define what God should do or what God shouldn't do made them blind to the miraculous that they couldn't even see God. So you have this man born blind and now he can see God and he's overwhelmed by God. And you have these people who claim to see God and know God and they're blinded to the things of God. You have this change of roles. And the Pharisees asked the man in verse 17, what do you say about him? What do you say about this man named Jesus? What do you say about the man who opened your eyes? And in verse 17, the man says, he's a prophet. When the man de declares Jesus prophet, he's saying that he, Jesus is from God, he speaks for God, and he represents God. But the Pharisees are so hard-hearted, so blind to the things of God, they end up bringing this blind man's parents in and they ask him, hey, is this your son who was born blind? 
And they answer, yeah, this is, this is our son. He was born blind, but how he can see now, we don't know. And so you should ask him, because he's of age. And the reason they defer and they put it back on their son, because in verse 22 of chapter 10, or chapter 9, it says, they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confesses him being Jesus as the Messiah, he would be banned for the synagogue. So the parent says, he's of age, which means that he's older than 18. He can answer for himself. We're not going to stick our neck out for our own flesh and blood because we don't want to be banished from the synagogue, which would be the presence of God. We want to be there. And so you ask him, put it back on him. The trial continues. And one thing we can take from this trial, this man that can now see, is not everybody is going to believe your testimony about Jesus Christ. You're going to have loved ones. You're going to have people that know you. You're going to have people in authority in your life that when you share about the testimony of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did for you, they aren't going to believe it. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into their little worldly design. It, 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 it makes them uncomfortable. But what I love about this story is this man who once was blind and now can see does not enter into some theological debate about Jesus Christ. He does not enter some theological debate about miracles and how he can now see. But in verse 25, according to his accusation, this is how he answers. So whether or not he's a sinner, because that's what they term Jesus as, he's a sinner. Whether or not he is or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know is I was blind and now I can see. What an incredible lesson we can take when it comes to sharing our faith. You don't have to have all the theological answers, all the doctrines down. You don't have to have every verse memorized and know where the reference are or all the Bible books and what order they come in or what order they were written in or who wrote what or who said what. You know what it comes down to? One thing I know. I may not fully understand God and his holiness and his divinity and supreme being and I may not fully understand heaven and hell and what's going to happen at either place. I may not fully understand the words like propitiation and sanctification and justification and all those wonderful multi-syllable words we throw out in church. I may not even fully understand the wrath of God on the cross. I may not fully understand the beauty of the resurrection and my salvation and my forgiveness. I may not fully understand, but one thing I do know, there is a God. He loves me. I'm a sinner and he saved me. That's one thing I know. When it comes to the sharing of your faith, just stick to the facts. Just stick to what you know. There's a God who loves me and he died to save me. And I believe it. I don't know about creationism or propitiationism or any of that, but I know God loves me and he saved me. Some people, even if we break the gospel down to simple methods, still won't accept it. We see with the Pharisees, the parents, the neighbors, it isn't until this debate goes on that it finally turns to theology and has a, this blind man or once blind man has this aha moment. Verse 30 if you have your scriptures. Verse 30, the, the man says, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he, Jesus, is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Yet we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Because remember, that's what they said. Jesus is a sinner. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. 
But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he then listens to him. And throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. What does this man do? He was a Jewish man. He would have been familiar with the oral law, familiar with the law of God. He sticks to the facts. Look, I don't know what happened. I, all I know is this one thing. I once was blind, but now I see. The Pharisees keep trying to, to go after him, to keep trying to get him to, to say something, to make him stumble or fall. And he says, look, you and I both know the word of God. You and I both know how God has revealed himself. You and I both know who God answers to. And God does not hear the prayers of sinners. God does not respond to the prayers of the wicked. Yet here is this man who lifted up a prayer and miraculously healed me, and so therefore God must listen to him, so he must be from God. He has this incredible doctrinal theological debate, and the Pharisees are so happy to hear it, they kick him out. And so the one thing the parents feared would happen to them has now happened to their son. Their son has been excommunicated from the presence of God, according to the religious leaders. And the story into there would be a sad story, but then Jesus shows back up in the scene. He's heard that this man has been thrown out, verse 35, and he says, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. He says, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Verse 38, I believe, Lord. And he said, and he worshiped. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. And then the Pharisees just can't help themselves. And some of the Pharisees who were there with him, they probably were just watching this man, trying to figure out where he was going to go and see if Jesus would come back into the scene. Jesus shows up. And they hear what Jesus says. He says, we aren't blind too, are we? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. He's basically saying you all have changed perceptions. This man who once was blind can now see the spiritual things of God and is fully aware of it. But because of your understanding of what you think God should or shouldn't do, you have now put yourself in spiritual blindness. There's a couple things I want us to take away this morning before we leave. And one of them is that we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. Now, I hate blind spots when I'm driving a car, particularly when we're with our family and we're driving up and down the interstate. Um, Jamie, love her, but she is a horrible co-pilot because she hates semis on the interstate. And so we'll be driving, and I'm fully aware that there's a semi right outside our window, and all I hear is... <gasps> And, and even worse, when you get up into the city, you get up in the city and you have the, the three lanes, like six lanes all together and three lanes, and I'm driving in the middle, and then you got semi on one side, semi on the other, semi in front, semi in back, and you realize, you know, I'm in a death box, and you're driving. Um, but I hate blind spots because, you know, you just, it, it's why they're blind spots. You can't see them. You've got to, like, move your head any way possible to see what is there or just be fully aware of what's going on on the road. And blind spots in a car can be very dangerous, but we need to understand that spiritual blind spots are even more dangerous. As we walk through this passage, what we see is each group either had a spiritual blind, set, blind spot or a potential for one. 
The first individuals who notice this man is healed are the neighbors and those who knew him, and they have a blind spot of logic. They couldn't rationalize how this man who was blind since birth could now, speak, could now see. They even debated. Maybe this man isn't the man. Maybe he just looks like that man, and, and maybe he is the man. They had this blind spot of logic. And the blind spot of logic allows us to find excuses for why we can't do something or why God can't do something. You may have a blind spot of logic this morning, and then logically what I want to say is you just need to look to the cross. If your blind spot of logic is you're trying to figure out everything about God and how God works and how he fits into your little bubble, the reality is God doesn't want to be in your bubble. And he broke all blind spots of logic when it comes to the cross. Here is a holy God who stepped out of the heavens, who walked the face of the earth, lived a perfect life that we couldn't, died on a cross, and then rose again. He ultimately took our place. Logically, salvation does not make sense. Why would an almighty, all-powerful God do such a thing? Because God illogically loves you. He is head over heels, infatuated with you, and he wants you for eternity. And so logically, it doesn't make sense. But here's what we need to learn. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we're told to live by faith, not by sight or by logic. The other blind spot comes with the, the Pharisees. They have a blind spot of tradition and legalism. Logic was in there, but their logic was based upon their understanding of the scriptures. Well, God wouldn't break his command, but the reality of the command that the Pharisees said God was breaking was their own. It wasn't God's. It was their interpretation of God's command. And so when they, they see Jesus breaking their interpretation of what work is or work isn't, they come to this conclusion that Jesus didn't match their criteria. He didn't match their traditions. He didn't match the way they put God in a box. And so he definitely wasn't God. He definitely wasn't showing how God would act. They were stuck in their man-made traditions and their legalism. And the sad reality, there are a lot of churches in America that are stuck in the blind spot of traditions and legalism. It holds to this precondition that this is what God can do or this is what God definitely won't do. And sometimes it breeds its ugly face. It's like, we've never done that before. The blind spot of traditional legalism is killing churches because churches are defining how God would act. And some churches are so blind that they, they're only going to use certain translations of the Bible. You know, we're only going to use specific publishers because only some publishers are of God. And we're only going to use certain types of instruments because only God will listen to certain type of instruments. And we're only going to dress a certain way because, you know, that's what God would want. He'd want us to dress a certain way. But here's what we should concern ourselves when it comes to these things. And they are important. Is it an accurate translation of the Bible? Is it accurate? Not a paraphrase. This is actually come from the Word of God and use the Word of God and put it in a language we can understand so we can hear the voice of God speaking to it. Do the materials teach biblically? Our instruments, whether they're drums or cowbells or whatever, are they moving us into the presence of God? And as far as clothes, all we should worry about is that they have them on. If these all check out, all is well. But if anything, like, if anything gets off the mark, if the Bible's not accurate and if it's not accurately taught or, or we're not moving in the presence of God, but it's coming to show, or people come up naked, we, we got to talk, right? But that last one's not going to be in private. We, uh, we read the Bible, 
And what we see is we don't get to define what God can do. We only have to get on God's plan on what he wants to do. I don't get to define what God can or can't do simply because it makes me uncomfortable. I just have to get on God's plan on what he wants to do and he invites us. The Pharisees that confined God, their traditions and legalism made a God of their own. This blind man or man who once was blind, he was familiar with it. He doesn't try to use logic or in a theological debate. He simply points to the word of God and says, look, this is what I know and this is what I understand. But we also see with the blind spot of tradition and legalism also becomes the blind spot of pride. The blind spot of pride basically says that we know better than God and we know better than anybody else. And that just pushes people away. Next are the parents. They come in and they're asked, is this your son? Yeah, he's, that's him. Well, can you tell us what happened? No, you ask him. He's of age. The parents have a blind spot of self-preservation. The passage implies the son's testimony that the, the parents understood it was Jesus. But they're not going to stick their necks out for their son. This is their own flesh and blood. This is someone they should be overwhelmed with joy that now my son, who I know has been blind, can now see, yet they don't care because they aren't going to stick their neck out and they aren't going to get kicked out of the synagogue. We understand to be a follower of Christ, Jesus said this, blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. And John, Jesus says, John 15, 20, remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And finally, in James, James writes to the believers who are going through persecution that they should consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Lifeway has a research group, and what they found is that 50% of Faithful church attenders. Faithful church attenders is defined as those individuals who go to church almost every week. 50% of faithful church attenders have never shared their faith. 50% of people who go to church every single week have never shared their faith. goes on to say that 25% say they've shared their faith at least once in their lifetime. 14% have shared their faith at least once in the past six months. And only 11% of faithful church attenders all across America are actively actively sharing their faith. 11%. The main reason people are not sharing their faith, according to ChristianPost.com, is fear. Fear of ridicule, judgment, disapproval, rejection, and ultimately persecution. In other words the blind spot of self-preservation. Is that your blind spot? More worried about your neck than the neck of the man or woman that sits in the same room as you during the week. Then there's a man born blind. He doesn't necessarily have a blind spot, but he shows one that we possibly could, and that's the blind spot of spiritual immaturity. The blind man seems to be moving closer to God and understanding what God has done But the reality is a lot of people have grown up in church and they aren't growing at all in their relationship with God. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth that he desires to give them a deeper understanding of the things of God, but he can't because they're spiritually mature. He goes on to say that being spiritually mature, what it does is it keeps us more attached to the things of this world and the things of God. 
The writer of Hebrews wants to elaborate further on how Jesus is the high priest, but he can't because he says the people have not matured. And he goes on to say there's a direct correlation in our growing in our relationship with God and in our sharing our faith. According to the Bible, the statistics we just found, the reason more Christians aren't sharing their faith is because more Christians aren't growing in their faith. Paul gets on to the believers in Galatians that they, because of their spiritual immaturity, they have begun to adopt a false gospel that's not even a gospel. And so what we see when it comes to spiritual immaturity, if we have that blind spot, it keeps us worldly. It hinders us from proclaiming the love of God and it opens us up to unbiblical ideas. Is that your blind spot? Are you the same age today as you were when you came to Jesus Christ? Or are you growing in that relationship? Are you investing in this relationship you were saved to have? It's going to take time. And you've got to take the time to do it. Final blind spot is the blind spot of sin. Disciples began the question asking, whose sin is it? The reality is, sin was in all of these people, except for Jesus Christ. The Bible says that our blind spots of sin keeps us from seeing and being intimate with the things of God. And we can rationalize our sin that it's not a big deal. It's not hurting anyone or, you know, I just like it. I don't want to change. But the reality of sin is, is it keeps us from being intimate with the God who saved us. And it quenches the Holy Spirit inside of us. Sin keeps us from living the great commandment to love God and people, which keeps us from living the great commission to make disciples and share our faith, which inevitably keeps us from using the power of the Holy Spirit to be God's witnesses. That's the blind spot of sin. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you have a blind spot of logic or legality or pride or safety, immaturity, or maybe a sinful behavior, but this is where God brings us to remove the blind spots so that we can see. Maybe you're here this morning and your blind spot is your salvation. Maybe you're here and you grew up in church and you've done all the church Christian things and you're a good person and I don't doubt that. You may be a great person, but the Bible says that all of our good works are filthy rags before holy God. The Bible says that all of us fall short of the glory of God or the perfection of God. And so I can do all the good stuff, all the right stuff, and I can still be lost. You may be living in a blind spot of salvation right now. You've been trying to prove everything you've been doing, and God says you need to knock it off and realize what I've already done for you. Bible says that God loved you so much he sent his only son to die on the cross for you or my sins. And they placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later that I could be completely forgiven. I don't have to have it all figured out. I just have to know this. God loves me and is for me. And he died to show that and rose again that I could have it in my life. If you're here this morning and you're living in a blind spot of salvation and God is calling you out, it begins by first admitting that I'm a sinner and I fall short of God's glory. But I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again that I could be forgiven. And finally, it's to confess it. Confession means publicly made known. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. You can't be saved in secret. And so some of you may be here this morning and you believe all that, but one thing you've yet to do is to come down an aisle and let it be known to the preacher, Pastor, I want Jesus and I know Jesus loves me and died for me. And I want to let that be known. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe that, but you've yet to follow Jesus Christ in baptism. The Bible points to that as another sign of our confession. Confession, I believe Jesus died and rose again, and I am following in his example. 
If you have yet to do that, you're living in disobedience to God because God in his word strictly says we should follow Jesus in baptism. I don't know where you are this morning and what blind spot y'all have. I know I've got my own. I don't have the microphone because I got it all figured out. But I know God is good. And he's calling us this moment to repent and lay it at his feet so we can see like we've never seen before. Wherever you are, this is time responding. Ask Jackson, come up and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your gift of salvation. Lord, I pray in this moment, whatever we're wrestling with, whatever thing we've got going on, whatever's been keeping us blind to seeing your glory and the miraculous work you're doing in our life and our family's life, Father, we would just lay these at your feet and allow you to wash them away from us. Father, I pray for the individuals here this morning, maybe those who believe but have yet to follow through in baptism, and that's something they need to do, something they need to make right, part of their confession they still need to make. Lord, there's individuals here this morning that don't know you as their Lord and Savior. They're doing all the church stuff, all the things they think is the things they should do, but they've yet to make it be known that they want you in their life. They've yet to say that they need your forgiveness and invite you to be their Lord and Savior. And so, Father, I pray for them right now in this moment. You know their name. You know the wrestling match going on in their heart and their mind in this moment, that you would just give them the courage and the strength by the power of your Spirit to walk down this aisle and let it be known that they want Jesus. Thank you for this day. I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I thank you for putting up with a sinner like me. For you are good. Lord, we come this time of invitation, this time of lifting you up in praise and worship because you alone are worthy of it. Please let this be pleasing to you and the worship you're seeking after. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.